everybody welcome back to another subscriber episode of 80s all over i am co-host scott weinberg here joined by dot 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 uh co-host drew mcweeney yes and we are here to record a special bonus audio commentary of one of our favorite 80s films time bandits drew, drew will give you instructions on how to cue it up so uh drew is going to be more scene specific and i'm going to be more general so if you're watching the film at home with us, listen to Drew only. If you're in your car <laughs> or, or not watching the movie, ignore Drew and listen to me only. I All think right. that works perfectly. Okay, so folks, it is queued up on my end and ready to go. We're about to start. And where we are starting is I have the Criterion copy. So the Criterion logo just disappeared. I hit pause and it is about to fade up on the Handmade Films logo at the beginning of the movie. And I'm going to do that at 3 two, one. And right. oh, hey, there's the Handmade Films logo. And uh, my first thing I would like to say is I actually this weekend just crossed the threshold in my house with uh, Film Nerd 2.0. Toshi has become Monty Python crazy, and he's oh, asking no. questions about them now. Oh, does and he one do, of the, what does he do? Knights who say nay? Does he do that? Not yet. He hasn't seen that yet. So we just oh, okay. did Life of Brian. And ah. he, because they have far more familiarity with that story than they do with the King Arthur story. So I'm going to show them some King Arthur so they know what they're making fun of. Um, but so his whole thing was he was asking about Handmaid and we talked about how the Beatles and George Harrison specifically kind of helped get Monty Python uh, working in film, how Handmaid Films was really designed to make films that George Harrison wanted to see and how he was a Python fan. That was equally important, if not more so for Terry Gilliam afterwards, because Time Bandits was a film nobody could get made. And I love that Handmade Films, their legacy is uh, so British-specific, so Python-specific, and there are these films that literally wouldn't exist without them. And, my God, I cannot imagine a fantasy film landscape without Time Bandits, man. Yeah. Uh, just to uh, illustrate um, Drew's point, hey, I, I threw up a list of the Handmade Films productions, and uh, what we have here is Life of Brian, uh, selected filmography. The Long Good Friday from 1980. So great. Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Scrubbers, The Missionary, Privates on Parade, Bullshot, A Private Function, Water, Mona Lisa, Shanghai Surprise. All right, all right. They weren't all winners. With Nail and I, Bellman and True, Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, Track 29, Five Corners, The Raggedy Ronnie, Checking, a how, checking Out, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, Powwow Highway, Cold Dog Soup, Nuns on the Run, The Wrong Guy, Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, and uh, 127 Hours. Yep. Yeah, it's um, – okay. Now, one of the things that I think they did so beautifully in this movie, and uh, Gilliam's world in this film. You know, I, I, I think we both are on the same page about Gilliam as a, uh, a visual artist. He has this beautiful sort of rough – his effects don't feel like movie effects, Mm -mm. No, um, very um, rust, uh, rustic is not the right word, but that's the word I want to use. <laughs> it, well, it's funny because they keep avoiding handmade because of the same in the company. But there's a reason that that fits so well here is there everything feels um, very shaggy and very uh, lived in. It doesn't feel polished, and I I really love that. I when you look at the um, the the world here, um, the suburban England that he is 
<coughs> doing these early scenes. Look at all the plastic covers on everything. Look oh, yeah. at how this house is being lived in and how this family sort of they're very materially obsessed. Um, and then look at the details in Kevin's room. All of this stuff at the beginning feels kind it's of casual. Yeah. Order versus but, chaos. Yeah. But all of this is a setup. You're going to see everything you see in this room again in this movie. Everything, whether it's oh, the yeah. drawings took, on his board, whether it's it the stuff on the floor. Like the fourth or fifth time before I realized, oh, that suit he's wearing at the end, the space that's just like the, the plastic on the couch. Yep. Uh, and and what I what I love about this movie, there aren't many family oriented films that are an indictment of bad parenting. You know, you get that premise in a lot of movies where, oh, Adam Sandler has a he's a completely distracted dad. And he has a magical loaf of bread every time he eats. You know, like, but this movie is actually a hey, parents. Listen up, you know, like pay attention to your children's life, you know, like get into what they're into, get, you know, like play their fantasy games with them. Don't ignore your children. And, you know, I, I truly think that this ending is to kids movies what like 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 seven is to adult movies it is this movie as i love the ending because it is such a scathing indictment of bad or absent parenting well and these uh, parents i think there's a reason that it's not just that terry's being clever with having plastic on furniture in the house and then when you see evil's fortress at the end of the movie and you look around there's plastic on all the furniture there there is a sense that it's evil to live the way these people live that it might be a benign evil but they don't actually engage with life all they care about is having the right thing and what's on television and they don't actually use any of the stuff in their home because they're afraid of making it less valuable and it's not a way to engage with the world whereas kevin as a kid He's curious about history and art and uh, fantasy and like he's got all this going on. That is the the weird, I think, position that Gilliam strikes in this, which is that the real evil here is this sort of banal ignoring of this child. Yeah. No, it's they're not abusing him. They just don't some care. could say, Drew. I'm about to blow your mind. Some could say that the little people who abduct him and take him on a and an adventure across time are not the true time bandits. You know who the time bandits are. His Who's that? They're his yeah. parents. They're I love Broadbent here. They're, yeah, they're stealing his time. They're like, you know, they're they're wasting the time that they have. Well, and they, uh, yeah, the the absolute refusal to engage with him. They have sent him to bed as early as they can, and it's clear that Kevin just wants something else. That's why there's. I, we'll talk about it when we get there. But there's a heartbreak in this film that I didn't recover from as a kid the first time I saw this thing. Yeah, and I responded to it differently because I was ready for them to leave that segment of the movie. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I guess now would be a good time for me to talk about my uh, early experiences with the great Terry Gilliam. Like you and like your lovely boys, I uh, first got into Monty Python. Uh, my sister and I watched it on PBS. I think it was on Saturday night at 8 o'clock. And, uh, and maybe again at 11, we just watched it like crazy. I wish it's lost to the sands of time. How I first discovered Monty Python friend or just random channel surfing. Drew, do you remember like your very first experience? Oh, I, I do. I, I specifically remember I, now I had seen this already. So I had a sense of them as performers, but I didn't know they had a show. So it was after this that I went over to a friend's house my friend and we were talking about this movie. My friend was like, well, you know, Monty Python. And I was like, no. And he got that look on his face like, 
I was had just tried to explain cell memory to him in Chinese. Like he nothing went in and he was how do you not know what okay, fine. And he immediately put on Holy Grail. We watched Holy Grail end to end. And at the end of it, I was like, play that again. Because I didn't know what I just see. Like I had no context for it. So I didn't know that they had a show. I didn't know that that was their sense of humor. It blew my mind the first time. Yeah. I was one of those Typical kids, uh, a lot of times when kids get into something, uh, they get into it in like very elaborate and involved ways, in a good way. For example, when you get really into baseball, you want to know every rule. You want to learn about every great, every manager, every World Series win. Like that's how a lot of times when kids get into a hobby, you know, their brain wants them to absorb as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's very true for movies. And uh, so I was already a Monty Python nut and uh, we my sister and I had seen uh, Life of Brian and Holy Grail and I had dug up Jabberwocky, which I didn't get and doesn't really don't think it should count as an official Monty Python movie. <laughs> no, it's not. It's that's just early Gilliam. Yeah, that's early Gilliam. And I, I'd be very curious to give it a revisit. But I did not like that one as a kid. But um, and then obviously I saw this uh, after this. Um, throughout the 80s, he did two other films, and the 90s, he was much more prolific. Terry Gilliam became literally my favorite director. Like, not my favorite as a vague term. I mean, number one. Like, I would read books, I would listen to the commentaries, anything having to do with the Terry Gilliam film. Brazil, when, when you're a kid and you see something that's smart and it makes your brain, like, bend and do some calisthenics, you like that. You respond well to that. And Brazil just made me like, whoa, this guy is smart. And I got some of the subtext of Brazil, probably not all of it, but I got some of it. And, you know, when when it, when an artist is giving you something a little bit difficult and you grasp it, that creates like a like a relationship that creates like a connection. And love Baron Munchausen. It's no time bandits. But then what uh, the, the Brazil, then Baron Munchausen. And that represents all of the '80s for uh, for for uh, Terry Gilliam. Now we're we're at the scene now. This is uh, the time minutes have actually broken into Kevin's room. Uh, this um, whole sequence where it runs down the hallway is just so well, this cool. Is just so the introduction cool. of the bandits themselves. I I want to take a moment because I know that Gilliam made this choice. I have a real problem with the way a lot of times little people are used in films. I think that it's a weird cheap effect. I I. A weird cheap choice where it's like, hey, if we cast them, that's weird. So look, there's weird in the movie. And I love that Gilliam's choice came from he knew that the kid was the film, but he didn't want the kid to have to carry the whole film. So he wanted a cast that would be on his eye level. He wanted a cast that felt like they were eye to eye with Kevin for the movie. And that was the, the initial choice. But then the casting he did. David Rappaport as Randall in this is, I think, one of the great performances of the 80s. He's awesome in this thing. It's great. But how good is Kenny Baker? How good is Malcolm Dixon? Neil Jack Purvis, Purvis Mike Edmund? Jack These Purvis. guys are unbelievable character actors. And to finally be given a chance to come front and center in a movie and to be the leads in the film and to play with as much character as they do in this movie, I, I think it is a rare moment where a filmmaker treated them with not just dignity, but he gave them the ability to create these really wild characters that almost no other filmmaker is going to let them do and and be the lead ensemble. It's it's 
one of the reasons I love this film, just watching these guys in the background, they are having so much fun creating this relationship and who they are to one another. And they play it so beautifully. Um, it, it's just a chance to see actors cut loose who never get taken off the leash right. like that. They're, they're adventurers and they're all little people and there's no explanation or backstory or they come from a planet where they're all small. No, uh, they all teamed up together for, because they have a common issue. No, it's not explained. It yep. doesn't matter. It's not, oh, these are the tall people and look, these are the little people. No, it just doesn't make a difference. It's, that's the beauty of it. And it's, uh, it's a good point, Drew. Um, but yeah, uh, to those who are completely familiar, I'll run right through. Uh, in the 90s, uh, 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 Mr. Gilliam gave us The Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's a trifecta there. Uh, then in 2005, odd for a guy who doesn't work much, he did a two films: My Brother, uh, The Brothers Grimm, and Tideland. Uh, to um, to to probably my least favorite Terry Gilliam films. Uh, then he did The Zero Theorem in 2013, and his long-awaited The Man Who Killed Don Quixote next year. Uh, that's an interesting career. Put even aside from his Monty Python membership, being the only American in a very British comedy troupe, being the animator who rarely acted with the troupe, uh, and then being a director who makes beautiful, weird art, but drives studio accountants crazy. Uh, the guy, he's just a fascinating filmmaker, and I'm, I'm grateful to have grown up watching his movies. How iconic is the way the Time Bandits travel in this movie? It is the simplest effect, the tiny animated square that opens in the sky. But man, did that make an impression on me as an image uh, yeah. in 1981. Yeah, less is more, man. Just like the, the it's, it's, it's a beautiful idea of what. It, well, how do they travel? They have a time machine. Well, no, they have a map. Well, I mean, what's the effect? Oh, uh, well, uh, they they fall into a hole and then a hole opens in the sky and they fall out. They just know when the holes are going to open and that's the way we do it. And it's very quick and it's very quick. Uh, and I very, I think it's I think it's one of the and you're right that hallway sequence with Ralph Richardson that first appearance of the supreme being, a sets up that he's terrifying which pays off beautifully later, but it also, it really sets this, this mood in the film that the, the movie is going to be scary at times, and the movie is going to be an adventure in the sense that you don't really know where you're going or how you're going to get there or anything. Kevin isn't given at the beginning of this, like a lot of fantasy films do, the, hey, you've got to do this, this, and this. If you get this book and you go to this place and you say these words, the magic thing happens and the princess is fine. There's none of that. And yeah. that is so rare in fantasy. It's one of the reasons I've always loved Alice in Wonderland is the chaos of it and the fact that it doesn't follow any kind of her hero's journey. This movie does that so well. And I think that's part of Gilliam and his response to the typical is he wasn't going to build this as if Kevin does something, he saves the world. This is just a kid on the run with these crazy things that have kidnapped him. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think that adds an, an interesting chaos to the movie because you say there's not a goalpost. You know, there's not uh, if he makes it to the zero, you know, the goal at the end zone, he scores and he goes home. A uh, happy ending. It's. He has to stay alive. He has to figure out what these guys want. And he has to figure out if he wants to be with them. Like, yeah. that's the cool part. There are times where he's out and out just mad at them. And well, like, and just, it's you know. great that they're assholes. That to me is, is uh, again, a great choice that so few people are willing to make to make them kind of unlikable and a little scary and weird and abrasive and real. Uh, Jack Purvis was my favorite. 
and I don't want to bring the room down, but I did some reading. And did you know that Jack Purvis died the exact same way that, um, uh, 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 oh my God, it was on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Anton Yelchin, same way he died. No, I didn't. Car backed into him, broke his neck. Oh, Jesus Christ. These, yeah, sorry about that. These, I, the, that's, so many of these guys spent a lot of their career under makeup or in costumes that like obscured them. Uh, you know, Kenny Baker, for example, oh. we knew his name. But for me, seeing him in this movie was such a revelation because it's oh, like, he's oh, such that's a Kenny Baker. Yes, it's so nice to see them actually perform. And he has such a warm, sweet like presence in the movie, Kenny oh Baker God. in particular. Yeah, he's the best. Fidget's so great in this film. <clears throat> they all are. They yeah. all are. And you know what I think happens a lot of times is that when little people are in a movie, like you see the Munchkins opposite uh, Judy Garland, okay, and their voices seem strange compared to hers, and they seem odd because they're small. But in this movie, the the context is completely different. Their voices yeah. are normal. They're they're like the fact is in most cases they're not there. You know, they like them being short is not a factor really. They uh, like Drew said they are in every way completely you know autonomous lifelike characters. And I, I, I think our generation grew up a, a bit more uh, understanding. I think of of you know not 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 nobody's perfect, but I think our generation grew up a little bit better for movies like this where you know these these guys were allowed to be real characters and they weren't just. Oh, look at that funny short guy, you know. So now we're doing the introduction of Ian Holm as Napoleon. And one of the things that I, I think is most interesting thematically in the film is how everybody we meet in this movie is counter to the way they've been portrayed in history or right. fantasy. Right. That, so, I mean, uh, that's the joke, right? Is that Napoleon is a, you know, a child. He's that a, he's so that he's so insecure and that his the the short jokes in this are not he's short. It's his fear of being seen as short. And there is a really clever – that's a clever way to get into Napoleon and his insecurities and who who he was and what drove him. And I love the, his response to the time band. It's based entirely on them being tiny. It, it makes him feel secure in some way. But I like – I think that everybody is revealed to be other than what Kevin probably had in his head. And if we take this all as Kevin's fantasy, the entire movie, as him dreaming and having nightmares about – things that are going on in his life, then clearly it's it's not it goes back to what you've talked about about the parents. It's that his parents are not what he wants them to be. It's not what parents should be. It's and there's I think that's a real fear of Kevin's in this movie is that everyone's going to disappoint him, that everyone's going to show some other face and be other than what they seem to be. And I think for kids, that is such a profound existential nightmare that the world is not what we think or it's not what we've been told. Harry Gilliam said that uh, Ian Holm was uh, hilarious on set, and that makes me happy because all I knew Ian Holm for, uh, from was Alien, watching him get his head punched off. So, I love uh, that he must have he must have had a great experience with him. Their work on this in Brazil, just terrific together, and it is pretty rare to see Ian Holm be this funny. Yeah, he, um, Ian Holm is not known for being uh, he can be very warm and sweet, but not necessarily ha ha funny, and. Uh, uh, some factoid that I yanked out of IMDb that's interesting. You know how old Ian Holm was when he played the then 26-year-old Napoleon? I'm going to guess 40. 49. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, Gilliam had a real thing about theater, about live theater back in these times, whether it's this or Munchausen. 
I love how crazy and garish and like held together by scotch tape and horror the uh, the theatrical productions are and his things. Like you can see yeah. that stuff's about to fall apart and go to hell. And I think there's always a sense of that. And maybe that's just how he sees art in general. Yeah, I, I and I I like the uh, the the interpretation that Napoleon is. I hate to say it, but I mean, all he does is watch stage all day and drink and laugh. And does he remind you of anybody? You know? <laughs> I mean, he's just if he's not watching, he's the, the way he's laughing at the uh, at the uh, violence in the stage play uh, in the uh, Punch and Judy. It's just it, it's a way to make fun of uh, Napoleon in in a new way. And as a um, kid, I didn't get why that was funny. As an adult, I do. <laughs> I love that Charles McCowan shows up as the guy running the theatrical company. McCowan, of course, um, has played a huge role in Terry Gilliam's career. He's the co-author of both Brazil and Adventures of Baron Munchausen and uh, had been a Python actor and shown up in some of their stuff. But uh, I like that Gilliam uses him on screen and everything as well. Like he's not just his collaborator. He loves making McCowan play like weak and terrible people. And yeah, I think McCowan uh, seems to do it very well. Uh, an, an interesting factoid that uh, at the back in the day fascinated me. We'll see him in a bit, but uh, Gilliam's co-Python, Michael Palin, co-wrote yeah. this film with him. And it is not based on source material. If you were to, like, this movie feels like it was based on a book from the 40s. It, and I mean that as a compliment. It does. Uh, and it's a completely original screenplay. And that that is that to me makes it more impressive. Well, and it's it's fascinating because it is uh, it was a response to him not being able to make something that he wanted to. This was never his dream thing, um, but it was a case of he was at that point trying to get Brazil pushed up the hill and couldn't do it. And nobody would buy that. And so this was, well, OK, kids films are a little easier. Kids films are big. I can do that. And. That, it, to me, it's nuts that something this beautiful and this well-realized and this thematically rich is kind of a, all right, well, let's just make something because I can't make the thing I wanted to. Right. Yeah, no, it's like, gee, I can't make a masterpiece, so I'll I'll lower my standards and make a masterpiece. Yep. And, I, you know, even after Holy Grail and Jabberwocky, this was a thing that when they showed people what they wanted to make and when they read the script, um, really nobody was willing to take the gamble on him. And Handmade had to pay for everything, even more than a normal production company does. Handmade had to pay for prints and advertising. Handmade had to guarantee that they would pay for um, certain things if the movie didn't make a certain amount of money. And uh, it's just when I think crazy. About, when I think about Harrison and Handmade and whoever else, uh, McCartney, I just think wouldn't the world be a better place if like rich people did that more often? Like if I hit the billionaire, if I hit the Pennsylvania multimillionaire and I'm tomorrow, I have $300 million. Guess who's making In the Mountain of Madness? Mm -hmm. Guillermo del Toro, because mm -hmm. I'm giving him the budget to make that movie. And, you know, it's like you think of it like, oh, yeah, businessman, world famous. But on the other hand, it's just George Harrison being a movie nut going, I love these guys. I'm in the Beatles. I'm in a position to call them up and be friends with them and help them make their films. Well, it's and the just the real payoff for that was that this was a monster hit around the world. So it's the one time that I think Gilliam was really rewarded for uh, pushing as hard as he did. And so were the people that took the chance. The fact that this kind of helped make everything else uh, handmade films ever made, because this money put uh, 
this movie put money in their bank for years. This was such a monster hit. It's the but, biggest thing Gilliam's ever directed. Still, oh yeah, it, uh, forty-two million, and yeah. uh, and and like you said, when we uh, I think when we covered Time Bandits, you nailed it when you said, "Why would people?" And I mean this with respect because I love Gilliam, but he's had a lot of trouble on productions and his films making money. You know, so people would say, "Well, why would you keep giving a filmmaker like, even though you love his films, why would you keep giving him money?" And it's because Time Bandits. Everybody looks back and goes, "Well, that movie cost like six million bucks and made over 40. That's mm-hmm. that, that's why we're willing to invest in this guy." And um, you know, it, uh, the guys had the most fascinating career, and I think a lot of it is because of the expectations built by this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Once uh, once they end up with uh, Ian Holm, and it's a quieter moment. You keep expecting for this movie to do what typical fantasy films do, which is settle into um, not being as crazy. But this film never lets the characters become like normal versions. No, they almost do. They they almost do. And then it's time to leave. He finds so many ways to continue to tweak and have fun with this. I love the shots of them sitting around the table, all with the giant hats on, all of them just barely over the edge of the table while Napoleon gets more and more shit faced. I think some of this stuff is beautifully staged above and beyond being hilariously funny. Oh, no. I mean, there's, yeah, there's visu- visual gags in that movie that you could see. He, you know, either knew it ahead of time or definitely learned it through working with comedic geniuses because there's stuff, like you said, where Napoleon is just rambling and then they'll cut away to the guys like pilfering stuff from the table or yep. poking each other in the ribs. And that stuff is funny. It's simple. There's so it's many all- little touches like that where you've got to imagine he had cameras rolling and everybody and he's like, just keep performing, keep behaving. And uh, and it's little stuff. And the kid is, let's just say, it's hard to get great kid performances. Yeah, he never did any other work. His name's Craig Warnock. I love that. I love that this kid exists as Kevin from Time Bandits. And that's it. Yeah. To, to For something... For some of these movies, I almost wish that was the law. Like, okay, you had a kid. He started a movie. Great. Don't screw him up. That's his one experience. Let's make it magical and wonderful, and you're done, instead of trying to drive it into the ground. And I think with a kid like this, it remains somewhat magical when we look back at it because we don't have 50 right. other movies. You're not, you're not constantly going. Head. Your brain's not screaming. Oh, my God. 13-year-old Christian Bale. <laughs> oh, hey. Do you remember when Craig Warnock grew up and he kidnapped that hooker in Times Square? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, or, oh, or oh, he was in three movies and then his career vanished because Hollywood's horrible. You know, no. You know, he's just a kid. was in this. I think he was in one other TV movie. And then that's it. That's and it. now I've heard, uh, obviously, Sarah Polly had a very different experience on Adventures of Aaron Munchausen. And I think that film was... Any kid who had been on that set, unfortunately, probably was going to be the lowest priority because of the the production itself. It was such an insane nightmare. But I've never heard Warnock talk about his experience here. It looks like it must have been amazing. The the way this cast behaves and the way they are with one another and with just among the adult actors, I would hope that extended somewhat to Craig Warnock. And in particular, the scenes between he and Connery are so lovely that I'd really love to hear what that relationship was like sometime. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting is because I noticed as a kid, you're watching the movie and it's like, all right, now, for now he has friends. Then he gets kind of a surrogate dad. And then later with Catherine Hellman, who's kind of a surrogate mom. 
Uh, like these are the things that his like he's dreaming of. These are the things that he wants. You know, he wants a a bit a group of friends who will uh, like um, welcome him in unquestionably. He wants a, a a tough guy, daring do father, but who's also sensitive and pays attention to him. Um, you know, and and the mother who's married to the ogre, but she's oddly sweet and well spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a very Wizard of Oz uh, template. Um, but what I love about this movie is that aside from a, a handful of influences here and there, it is st- stunningly unique. This is not like the Wizard of Oz, per se. It is not like, uh, you know, your typical kids' adventures. Um, it's weird. And it's interesting I, because I, you, you talk about Wizard of Oz, and I've always thought that Wizard of Oz has a thematic glitch in it. And it's one of those things where it doesn't ruin the film. Obviously, the film is whatever it is, and people love it, and they have their connection to it. But it has a weird thematic screw-up in it, which is the beginning of the movie is in black and white. She runs away to Oz. Oz is in vivid, unbelievable color. She comes home and realizes that home is as magical as Oz and is wonderful, and that's where she wants to be. So why should be color? Why is home should be color? Yeah, yeah, in color. But aside from that, what? blows my mind about time bandits is it utterly inverts that thematically. So any, if you try to make the comparison, this movie is like, no, no, you can go home again, but your parents will blow up and turn into. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, The framework is, yeah, you're right. The framework is somewhat similar uh, to wizard of Oz, but in many ways it is the anti wizard of Oz. (laughs) It's and that's, that's lovely. Oh my God. Okay. Now when I was a kid, I didn't get any of this. The, the stuff between Palin and Duvall at all. I didn't track why this was so funny. Nope, me neither. I, the just, older I, I, got, I liked that it was silly and they were like, she was making funny faces and, yeah. you know, but, and, you know, it's like, okay, they're different characters through time and they keep getting messed with by these, these guys. Like, that's funny, but I don't know. The impotence that- jokes are so much funnier as you get older. And Palin is... Look, I think Shelley Duvall is um, sort of an icon of weird, nervous energy on screen. So to have Palin come in and be to match her weirdness yeah. for weirdness in their scenes, they're really lovely together. Oh, and- I, I love that idea because, you know, you're writing this whole script and then at the last minute, somebody, you or your co-writer says, wait, I got this idea. How about like a long generation of couples? And they're always being interrupted by the time bandits. Every time they're about to make love, blam, they break through the, you know, like something ruined, like throughout time. And I don't know if that joke sell, like if it's sold 100 percent, but I love the idea of it. I love the costuming on these guys. Kenny Baker's candle on his head always kills me. Yeah. There's so many, you know, Gilliam just you could you, you could see talk where they've been because of all the stuff they've stolen. So you can see what other times they've already been to. Yep. Uh, you know, that's built building character through production design and on co- costume design. You know, that's what that is. The pirate hat on Wally, the Civil War era hat. Uh, yeah, it's I would love to know the backstory on all of this. Now, it's funny because no, it just must have been like one meeting where, you know, the costume designer said, all right, so there are guys who go through time. Right. And he's like, exactly. So one of them wears a pirate hat. Yes. And one has a beret from the French. Yup. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like that's exactly right. It, it must have been so much fun to cook up that idea. These ideas. Um, there was a little while uh, back in around 2014, 2015, where Gilliam was talking uh, with um, Amazon about doing Time Bandits as a series for them. 
And I'm really curious what they would do if they went back to this material now, like what he would do to play with it, how he would extend this world. And also like, like how he views this as an ongoing thing, because Kevin to me is the main character of the movie. I don't think if you were to go back to this, that you could have the kid be the center. It would have to be the time bandits this next time. Wouldn't it be interesting if Kevin was the father and he's trying to get the time bandits to visit his son? I'm really curious. And it sounds like that's the kind of thing he could at least commercially speaking, get off the ground. But you so know, like he maybe was... he like intentionally puts the kid to bed early and kind of ignores him, but he doesn't want to. But he's just, <laughs> too, you know, if I'm neglectful enough. Right. You know, I mean, you know, you don't make him abusive, but, you know, you make him somewhat callous. Um, and then the time bandits come and teach him the error of his ways, which are. Don't treat your children poorly so that the magical uh, time bandits will arrive. Live our lesson. Live our lesson and be nice to your children and give them ice cream for breakfast. Everybody listening to this podcast, give your children ice cream for breakfast tomorrow. I th- is that the lesson of this movie? That's I'm not a parent, so I can give any <laughs> advice I want. <laughs> All right, so I had a whole bunch of no, uh, I wrote down a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask you uh, about, like watching this with your kids. Mm-hmm. But uh, I left it in the car. So nice. Uh, uh, what were uh, did were they restless? Um, no, and in fact, this was one that I I covered. Um, the the when I saw this, it was a weird emotional experience because my my wife, um, my wife, boys, sorry took the boys at a certain point and decided she was going to go to Argentina for about six to eight months. And this is when they were very little. So Toshi had really just started um, becoming addicted to movies. He was five and a half when this happened. And uh, the last day he, he was in LA before he left for a while, he picked the movie that he wanted to see. And it was time bandits. It was the cover of that thing. So Alan has never seen the movie. This was just one that I watched Toshi back then and that has been his and mine since. And I'm, I am curious to finally sit down and watch it with Alan because my connection to it with Toshi is so personal and about the time that we saw it. And he didn't even get that it was funny. Most of it to him was just one, oh my I, God, dude, what am I looking no, no. at after another? I did not realize, like, I knew that it wasn't, as a kid, I would have called it kind of light in a way, but I didn't get the jokes either. I, yeah. I didn't I did not get that this was a funny film until I was probably 17 or 18. Not, I mean, to me, it was just kind of a fun, weird lark. It was a fun quest movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't. It wasn't until I was older that I got the humor of it and, and the subtext of it. Um, um, but he he um, Toshi had the same reaction that I've always had. And I think part of it was the. Again, because I showed it to him when I did, part of it was the notion of Kevin being separated from something. And he disconnected from the movie when Kevin got taken away from Agamemnon and never reconnected. So, And that's the really, part that bummed you out, too. And that's the part that bums me out. And I, it did not help that then I didn't see them for six months. Like, that movie yeah, then became this weird, painful thing. And that, So it's weird. Like, the way you show something and when you show it, when I saw Time Bandits in the theater at 11, it was just this awesome fantasy movie. It had none of that subtext and then became something very different when I watched it with them. Um, uh, I'd like to go back and see it fresh. I think it would be a very different experience now. I uh, 
I, I think I was kind of bored by the Agamemnon segment when I was a kid. That that bit just kind of bored me. I I, I maybe thematically I wasn't interested in his quest for a good father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just for some reason that it, it, it might be the least funny of the segments. Is that? Oh, I'd say so. I'd say it's far far more about the um the thrill of adventure than it is sort of like right now we're just getting to the John Cleese Robin Hood camp, and everybody's entering. They're all being spit on by the merry men, and then we meet the insane John Cleese version of Robin Hood. Thank yeah, you now here another out. joke I didn't get as a kid. I used to impersonate it because he's even in the joke. I didn't – I don't get it. He's just super polite. What's yeah, the super, joke? Yeah. Just super polite, and he's the front. And when you look at the Merry Men, the Merry Men are horrible. Yeah. I think Robin Hood is like the PR face of the Merry Men. And um, super polite. And then you watch him knocking – and you watch them knocking people out behind them. Uh, again, it is not at all what I think Kevin probably had yeah. in his head when he No, you're right. Robin That's Hood. a good. It's a good political gag, which is – yeah. Oh yeah, he robbed from the rich and gave from the poor. But behind him, you were just uh, you were just robbed. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, there was a lot of yeah. Um, and I would have watched John Cleese reading the newspaper at this stage of my life. Charlie, good to meet you. Yes, hello. He's so he's so charmed by them. <laughs> and I this this you is what I think that this whole sequence is maybe kind of a an, a, a joke on the royal family. Uh, possibly. I think it's just English culture. They, I think Gilliam, as an outsider, always got to observe it a certain way. But Cleese, so much of Cleese's comedy is about deflating the pompous. Yeah. And I could see how Robin Hood would be a great target for him, especially you got to remember, for us, it's different. We grew up with American pop culture. If you are an English schoolboy, I think it's one of the reasons Guy Ritchie's career is Sherlock Holmes, King Arthur, that kind of thing, because those are giant giant cultural figures that are part of your cultural heritage. So Robin Hood is one of those things that I think is taught from day one as a certain kind of figure. And something about Python is just they like to deflate the romantic and the pompous and the the accepted. And I think Robin Hood is such a great target for them. I'm really surprised they never made a Robin Hood movie. It feels like the kind of material that they write in the Holy Grail Life of Brian age might have considered. Yeah, it's weird that whole the whole Robin Hood sequence is it's funny because it has, you know, people getting punched and falling down, but I didn't get the joke. I didn't get like, oh, he's taking the money with a very nice face, but in truth they're getting the shit beat out of him. Okay. Uh didn't get it. Loved it. Oh. Still still loved it. Just didn't get the joke. <laughs> so delighted that they dropped by to give all this stuff to the poor. The poor are gonna be so happy. <laughs> right, right. As if these people are as if the people you're robbing aren't poor. Yeah, and the time minutes have zero interest in giving anything to anyone. Uh, watching David Rappaport's face as this sinks in that they're about to lose all their loot to Robin Hood and his men is terrific. Because Rappaport, the indignation that kind of kicks in is like, no, 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 no. This is our stuff. We stole this fair and square. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of this. I, I'm a big fan of, and I know this movie is not beloved anywhere near the same way Time Bandits is, nor would I say it is, is as good. But I love Mars Attacks. And one of the things I love about it is I would call it by a different title. I think it is Assholes from Space. And there is something great to me about just little crazy asshole characters who don't apologize for what they are. Right. Um, kind of like if humans were to attack another planet, how we would act. Oh, my God. We'd be the worst. Can you imagine the other way around? Like the Mars Attack sequel where they're just on their planet and then we come and attack them. <laughs> God. <laughs> talk about obnoxious fucking villains. Ugh. 
And I like that they eventually just get fed up. It's their their encounter with Robin Hood doesn't end so much as they just can't take any more of him. And for Kevin, for a kid that's been raised reading these stories about Robin Hood, what a disappointing ending to your encounter with him. Yeah, uh, one, one thing I always find very interesting, and if I'm sure I'd be surprised, you probably consider this as well, and if you haven't, you'll enjoy it. The gents who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure were probably huge Time Bandits fans and were just disappointed that they didn't bring a character with them from each place as they went along. Look, I, I think this, is, this has got to have been influential for anyone raised in the 80s. This was, I know for kids my age, it felt so different than everything else. It didn't feel like it had been made by a studio. It didn't feel like it was made by the same kinds of people that were typically right. making Right, and, and it's not just the cultural difference. It's not just that it's UK and therefore there's some stuff I don't understand and there's jokes I don't get. Uh, it's not just that. It's it's that it's a aggressively unique kids movie. It is, you know what I mean? It is never willing to go, oh, let's just do the easy way, which is now they hug him and that's the end of the scene. It, oh my God, David Warner just made his entrance. Oh, um, stop. Here we go. Uh, there is, I, om- there is what, almost nothing you can say to contextualize how great David Warner's work is in this film. It is not just one of the great comic performances of the 80s. It's a genuinely great bad guy performance where he is unrepentant. And he understood, I think, as well as anybody who played a villain in the 80s. He understood what the camera was doing at every point, how he looked on camera, and how to get the most out of every second he was on screen. Yeah. Uh, David Warner is a, an iconic, fantastic uh, uh, char- British character actor. Uh, we have covered him so far on the island from 1980 uh, and the French Lieutenant's Woman and Tron. Soon we'll be getting to him in The Man with Two Brains, um, Company of Wolves, uh, just so much stuff. Uh, yeah. So so much stuff. The guy is crazy prolific. He's done a lot of junky movies, but he's also very often – one of the best things in those junkie movies. Um, as soon as one we of the Star Treks. Oh, go ahead. Star Trek, one of the Star Treks, too. David Warner, yep. forget which. As soon as we get to evil, I love that it gets back into bureaucracy. I don't think there's anything that uh, Terry Gilliam finds more terrifying or profoundly upsetting than paperwork. Yeah. And uh, uh, to me, Terry Gilliam's idea of lo- hell is standing in line. Standing Terry- in line and not having the right form when you get to the front. <laughs> Um, and he does like everything about evil's uh, henchmen, the industrial gear they wear, oh, the place so they work. Those guys freaked me out. Those guys did when I was a part kid. animal, part ogre, part whatever they are. They're just weird. And and it is a you look around and it's like an office. It's like a factory that they're working in. I love that evil's just there's a job to be done. There's oh, yeah, probably no, shifts and time cards. One of Gilliam's most interesting ideas is that, like, you know, abstract concepts working in the everyday world. That's fascinating, which is, yeah, like you said, evil is a corporation that has uh, has to hit the bottom line every year. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, and it, it's just an interesting tweak. Um, and that matte painting uh, that we get to later I, 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 of the maze, of them running on the maze, I've tried yeah. to see the seams in that. That is some of the best mat work you'll ever see. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that's one thing that truly impresses me about this movie. A lot of things do. 
But as far as like um, just practical things, not just, oh, it's art that spoke to me. That's a little bit more ephemeral. But I am amazed at the special effects, costume, and production design that they got at, from this movie for six, under $6 million. This movie looks like 12, 12, 20 million bucks. Well, it's a real it's – it's the difference between – you write a movie and then you just spend as much money as you need to spend to make it, which is what Hollywood does. And we have a certain amount of money. This is the movie we wrote. We're going to solve these problems and figure out how to get this stuff on screen. And I, I am constantly impressed by this era of filmmaking because of the creative problem solving. There's and there so are many ways. That- so many times they could have cut a corner, Drew. Sorry, yep. pinning that. He they, like the bit with the cage at the end. That's crazy elaborate. It could have just been. All right, we'll make it a dungeon, but we'll write it so it's funnier. Yeah, because this this whole cage thing is just so difficult. There are and so many choices that would be easier. They did the difficult thing, and it paid off. You know. Yeah. Well, and it's one of the reasons these things are indelible. It's one of the reasons that we remember images from this and feel like we've never really seen their equivalent. It's because Gilliam realized that you know the the money wasn't what was important. The, what's great about those scenes, you're talking about the, the maze scene, when they're in that cage at the end, it's a very simple actual what they must have built to shoot that. But it has enormous visual impact because he chose to play with black and with negative space and with what we might right, fill in right. with our I mean, own heads. Even, yeah, you put a bunch of guys in a cage and you know that's not difficult, but to have it match so flawlessly with yeah. the master shot and have it, you know, there's so many ways to make that scene look kitschy, and it doesn't. It yeah. still holds up. Well, it's great design in knowing that if we shoot this against pure black, we get away with a lot, and it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I love I love the way evil works in this, the, the way he starts to influence the guys and play off all their worst, worst impulses. And again, you keep waiting for there to be a reason that it had to be Kevin that went on the adventure with them or that they're going to teach him lessons. Like, you know, you talk about if they did the sequel, it'd probably be much more Mrs. Doubtfire and in the way they did things. But that again, it never becomes that it's never about Kevin has to be the one that no, was with that's them. The, that's or, one of the best things about it is that he is like, uh, he's like a spectator. He's a, he's a, he's a tourist. He's not, they didn't come after him. The grand accident, basically. Yeah, of, oh, yeah, shit. They didn't, well, we have to go find this kid so he can help us. No, right. they chanced across him and they, he came with them for a little while. And, you know, you kind of get the idea that they've had lots of fellow travelers over the years. They're, they're, they end up being nice to Kevin, but like, it's no big deal that they have a stowaway with them for a while. So they just did this shot with the two doors side by side. I don't think digitally you could make that shot look any better today. I don't think there's a way to make that the doors opening and closing any more visually perfect than they already were. That's pretty crazy that with an optical effect, you, you found the very best way to ever do that. That's Gilliam, man. I mean, the guy just has stuff in his head that well, forget that. Cause a lot of us can imagine wild fantasy, fanciful things, but he He's somehow wrestling it up on screen. Yeah. Yeah. He somehow through his own skill and through the skill of the people he works with, turns what's in his crazy imagination into practical effects. And that, that to me is, you know, that that's, that's a director. That is yeah. a visionary director. Um, so this is uh, the entrance now of Agamemnon. And 
famously, Terry Gilliam had written into the script a description of his entrance in the film when he takes the helmet off as being Sean Connery or whichever actor is of equal stature, but we can afford. Right. So imagine you're writing a screenplay and your hero, you write it. You said uh, this this hero is uh, noble and handsome like Chris Evans. Um, only we can't afford Chris Evans. And then a year later, Chris Evans takes that role. <laughs> um and that turned out to be, I think, enormously important, whether Gilliam realized it or not, because by the time they started shooting, Gilliam hadn't been on a set in a while. And, uh, you know, like anything, it's a muscle. Like, you have to be actively filmmaking, I think, to, to really have your chops up to up to speed. And Gilliam said he was really rusty that first day. He went in there with tons of storyboards, and he thought he knew what he was going to do. And very quickly, Connery was the one that took him aside and said, all right, look, here's what we're going to actually do. And I think that first couple of days with Connery, who had a real no-nonsense approach to filming at the time, probably helped Gilliam get out of his own head. And he said since then that he credits Connery with with really saving his ass and not having him start this film 17 days behind schedule, which he could have. Um, it helps sometimes to have an actor who's just like, no, look, make it simple because I'm not doing the thing you're asking me to do. Right. Well, you know, uh, hopefully he was uh, knowing Connery probably at this point in his career. He's probably cool about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't want to call a director out <laughs> in front of the actors and whatnot. That That's embarrassing. Yeah, I think it was just part of the ongoing like conversation of, all right, look, I know what you think you're asking for, but there's a way to get there. Right. And part of it also was, I think, Connery was, was probably where you lose the kid. You only have a certain amount of time with him every day. Yeah, uh, he was probably grateful for the tip, to be honest. Yeah, well, and uh, and it is an interesting moment for Connery. We think of him now as an iconic super movie star who, you know, certainly has earned his place in the firmament. But, man, his career hit the rocks hard. And there was a big chunk of time where he was he was was doing the equivalent of autograph shows and, you know, guest spots on Mannix. It just was not his era. And I think for him, it was really hard to figure out how he was going to become that next version of Sean Connery. I would argue it starts here. I would argue that this movie helped a lot of filmmakers see him in the context of things like Highlander or see him as the older aging, graceful Connery that he became in the untouchables. That transition really didn't start until around now. Yeah. Uh, he had a lot, he's had a lot of rough spots throughout his career. You know, when, when somebody, when an actor is very popular and like works constantly, you know, you're going to get a Zardoz in there every once in a while. Um, <laughs> you mean the did, best movie ever made more from the IMDb trivia page. Did you know, <laughs> did you know this, uh, that Jonathan price was offered the role of evil? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and look, I love their work together. I, met Jonathan Price on the set of G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, uh. and uh, had a lunch break sitting next to him and just talked Brazil with him for 30 minutes, and he was charming about it. Jonathan um, Price had to turn down a role in Time Bandits because he was committed to starring in Loophole. Damn. But he did get the lead role in Terry Gilliam's next film, Brazil. Yeah. Well, look, that worked out because David Warner is the perfect evil, and Sam Lowry had to be Jonathan Price. So maybe that was right. Maybe that was uh, necessary that he missed that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's more than half of what's on the IMDb trivia page is, not, is nonsense. But mm -hmm. there's some interesting factoids in here. 
Several black and white stills exist that do not appear in the final film. These include the spider women sequence and Agamemnon giving Kevin a knife, which is later used when Og takes it from Kevin's satchel to unlock their cage. Yeah, uh, it's um. Yeah. There's there were lots of bits and pieces that I would love to see actually, and I wonder if any of them were actually realized all the way out to whole sequences. I know that Gilliam has said that um, that the stuff that they cut they didn't hold on to, and again, this kills me, man. How much of that happened in, during this era where because there was no home video, because there was no place to put all that stuff, nobody ever thought about holding on to it back then. When right. you were done with something, you just got rid of it. And if you weren't going to use it, you destroyed it half the time. Yeah. Other that deleted sucks. scenes Other deleted scenes included Kevin waking up at night to find his bedroom flooded with water and a pirate ship sailing through his window. Wow. And, and the bandits trying to rob a bank in 22nd century London. Okay, now I'd love to see – I've never seen footage from that or seen photos from that. I'd love yeah. to see some of that stuff. Uh, Terry Gilliam stated at the 2011 Bradford Film Festival in the UK that he believes all the footage, cut footage to be lost. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, here we go. Michael Palin wrote the role of Robin Hood for himself, but John Cleese wanted to play him. The script said to be played like the Duke of Kent a reference to Edward Windsor of Kent going to soccer matches and shaking hands with the players, asking them questions. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just, just deflated pomposity. It's they, they just love that. Um, and then I find this stuff, I, I guess this is where you said you were bored by it, but the notion of this King, this legendary ferocious warrior King taking time just to talk to this boy, I found really moving when I saw this as a kid and the idea that Kevin finally found one of his heroes that isn't the phony that all the others have been at this point. Right. Never really noticed how much this kind of almost plays like an anthology movie. Yeah, it's definitely. And that's one of the reasons I, I would imagine an Amazon series would work is as long as you figured out who the hook was or what your main character was and why the time bandits were in it. I, I think that, you know, the episodic nature of them jumping around time. It's like a doctor who, like, it seems like a natural. Well, I understand the ways of the world. I understand that, you know, um, if you have a horror script and you call it, uh, the Friday, the 13th remake, that's going to sell more tickets than camp, you know, camp violence. Okay. That, that's just going to make, that's just common sense. So when they reboot old shows and old movies, I'm half cynical and half, yeah, it makes sense. That's how the business works. Having said that, leave Time Bandits alone. Yeah, I can see that. It doesn't have, it's a perfect little jewel. It doesn't need to be ex- expanded. It doesn't need to be followed up. We don't need to follow the universe. It's just a, a perfect little gem of, uh, it says what it wants to say and says it well. Um, and is, uh, is very funny. So, I mean, yeah, if Gilliam was involved, especially I would give it a look, but I don't really see the necessity. I think at this point, the necessity might be keeping Gilliam working. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm really excited to see his Don Quixote movie. If you've never seen, there's a fantastic documentary out there called lost in La Mancha. And it documents uh, his uh, the man's attempts at turning Don Quixote into a film, and it's been it's been ridiculously difficult for the guy. And he is now in post production on the film, and I'm so happy for him. He must be just thrilled. Well, not just him, but that's a cursed project in general. Nobody should ever make Don Quixote. 
it's like the it's like you know saying Macbeth in the theater. You curse yourself the moment you start. Right, but wells crash on those rocks. I see Terry Gilliam is the guy who says, yeah, uh, forget that superstition. I want to turn down. I want to make a Don Quixote movie and superstition can fuck it. <laughs> yeah, how'd that work out for him? Uh, uh, huh? <laughs> movie's almost done, man. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I still believe that the negative could catch fire spontaneously. Uh, I've never seen more curse, more of a curse. Um, and I love this stuff. There's a great misdirect here where when Kevin gets abducted in the middle of the night and he gets walk through the town it really is very ominous and it goes back to what you said about this movie having a real sense of menace um you know you don't know from moment to moment what could happen and it turns out to be agamemnon sort of celebrating kevin and bringing him in and making him a part of the family officially but there's a moment where it looks like you go really really wrong and i remember as a kid thinking well okay because this movie certainly seems like anything can happen at any moment yeah uh, yeah, uh, there is no guarantee anybody gets out safe. Well, and I like that no character in the movie is is too one way or the other. Like Agamemnon is is kind and friendly, but he's not, you know, he's not like a sweetie. He's not a pushover. He's still a tough guy and he's still somebody you have to try to impress. And all the time bandits are all, you know, they accept Kevin, but they're very rough around the edges. They're certainly not like treating him better because he's a child. No. Um and and he has to like earn everything he gets in this movie. So at this point, you don't know is he about to get another win or another loss. <laughs> and I love this. I love how they actually abduct him. The whole dancing sequence with the where they break into three parts, and it's a beautifully staged sequence. Yep, yep. You get the idea that they've done this before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like they know how to distract. Like they've done this exact escape more than once. <laughs> And I do. I remember the first time I saw it and they split in half. And that's a great gasp in the theater. Like, oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Little by little. I, I love the also here. I love the idea that none of the people if, of history, like we think of all these people from history as like these giant epic people. But they're all just flawed, normal, insecure people, too. And, you know, that's that's what's kind of funny here is that like Napoleon is adult. And Robin Hood is a cipher and, you know, Agamemnon is a little bit gullible. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he, uh, here we go. We're going to steal your gold and Kevin as we uh, as we leave. They got their oh money back. God, they're the worst. This really is the worst because everybody's so happy. Everybody's having such a good time. And Randall is just counting it down. Here comes the door. We're out of here. Yeah. yeah oh. He's the smart one. It's great. Poor kid. I can't. I can't watch this. It always gets me every time. It's the worst feeling for this poor child. You want that kid to stay in ancient Greece? I do. He's happy. Okay. He's happy, and he's found somebody. That, I mean, Agamemnon literally just adopted him as the prince. It's, he got it. He got everything he wanted. Yeah, uh, but his parents. His parents are horrible. We've established that at the beginning of the movie. They don't deserve Kevin. His parents are the t- true time bandits. Yeah, they, they don't deserve Kevin. They'll never notice. And boom. Oh, my God. Heartbreak. Um, and then again, uh, his reaction is great, too. I know he's really angry. He's not, you know, he's really mad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love the dawning realization by Connery. Like, there's that great moment where he realizes that that kid's probably not coming back. Shit. Um <laughs> 
I like that they keep and I this was something that as a kid I complained about, but now I love. I love that fantasy and history coexist in this world. So they can go into Robin Hood and they can end up on the Titanic. One is history, one is complete fantasy, but they treat them equally. And I like that. I I, you know, speaking of deleted scenes, which we already covered, um, wouldn't surprise me if this Titanic bit was twice as long because it is much shorter than the rest of the stuff. And it's not all that good in comparison. Yeah, I think it was just to give them safety and then take it right back away from them. Yeah, I mean, it's a good gag of they think they're safe and uh oh, they're on the Titanic. <laughs> OK, you know, yeah. But again, yeah, as far as all. as far as like setting up good gags and everything, I think the other segments are a bit funnier. I do not understand what complicated backstory must exist for Palin and that weird thing on his nose in this segment. <laughs> oh God, Nuval. She's she is from outer space. Like Sandy Dennis, who we just talked about on an episode of the actual main podcast. I love actors who I can't picture anybody else making the choices they make. And Duval. In every single role she's ever played, makes about a thousand choices no other actor would make. She is unique. Yeah. Yeah. She is uh, committed. I mean, like some actors uh, don't want to risk looking foolish. And Shelley Duvall does not have that fear. She's a great actor and she is willing to do anything, whether it's glamorous or the diametric opposite of glamorous. Palin remains my favorite actor in the Pythons. He's so He's so he's, I know that all, they all play multiple roles and everything, and they've all done so great at being somewhat chameleons. But Palin is the one who I honestly feel like when he plays a character vanishes into it. Terry Jones is like the other end of that to me. Terry Jones is Terry Jones and everything and hilarious doing it. But Palin, I, I really love Palin as an actor. I think he is very special. And um, and I, I do. I love that he wrote some just crazy stuff for himself here. But it's great when we get to see him in later films in this decade actually get a little bit more depth and, and something to get his hands around because underrated and underused. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. My phone. Man, the time bandits take it where they can get it. Here's this one moment of luxury in the middle of all this chaos and horror of theirs. And for one moment on the Titanic, they have champagne well, and cigars yeah. and everything's lovely. Yeah, and they look great. Um, what I find interesting is that if you go back and like dig through the history of the Titanic, there were reports of a group of little people just arriving and then vanishing before the iceberg hit. <laughs> true story. It is Absolutely based on actual events. Um, you know, Rappaport had a complicated career after Time Bandits, and I think a, like a lot of times what happens is you're in one thing that's a hit, and they try to figure out how to make that thing happen over and over. And I, with Rappaport, nobody else really knew what to do with him or how to write for him. And I've heard stories about him on the set of this, how he was Randall, how he bullied the other actors, the other small actors, how he really demanded that he get more close-ups, how he, and part of me wonders how much of that was him vanishing into the character. Part of me wonders how much of that was Gilliam responding to that and going, oh, well, I'm just going to crank this up in the character. Why not lean into it? Right. Uh, but it, 
it, it is rough when you see an actor do this kind of work and then nobody ever wrote for them that same way again. And we talk about it with actresses. We talk about it with actors who like Rappaport have things that specifically make them tricky with casting. But, um, but you do get a sense that if we did more of this, we would, we would just have a richer film history because we get people who give performances like this, who, who don't get written for. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the sweetest revelations of this movie is that you've seen all of these little people actors, these guys in other movies. And it's like, well, of course, if we need somebody to play a munchkin, a dwarf, an elf, uh, whatever, it, it's helpful to have a little person play that role for a lot of reasons. But in this movie, you realize, oh, they're actually pretty good actors. They are. They're not just guys reading off cue cards because they're short. <laughs> they have real personality and real attitude and it shines in this movie. It shines whenever they pop up in anything. But, little known um, trivia fact: that sinking of the Titanic effect that we just saw yeah. cost one hundred and fourteen million dollars in nineteen eighty. Wow! No, um, it's amazing how simple that is. He sank yeah. the Titanic in twenty-two seconds. Take that, James Cameron. I think it's meant to be broadly <laughs> kitschy on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Um, and now we're entering some of, some of the craziest. This is where now I feel like the movie starts to really take flight into a purely Gilliam realm. Because up until yeah, then, we played off of touchstones that we recognize. Now he's just going into his world. Yeah, and, and he, this shows you, I think, the structure of the screenplay is very clever because you know all these characters. You know who Napoleon and Robin Hood are. And so now you are 100% invested in the premise, the characters, and all that. And then things get super weird. Well, guess what? You're already in for the long haul. So, it you know, like he's he's already sucked you in with somewhat, you know, familiar ideas and familiar characters. And now that things are going to get weird, you're already, you know, knee deep in the movie. So uh, if the movie had just started in high fantasy, I, I don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah, I think you have to build up to it. Now, see, I, I don't know how you would do this today, but the idea of reversing the footage polarizing it so it's a photo negative and then having them fall into the sky and then like it's crazy it almost doesn't make sense but it's a really great way of pulling off this big visual something for very very little money i've got to imagine this whole transition between the world of reality and the world of fantasy was just a matter of a couple of little optical printing tricks not yeah like tons and tons of money yeah, and it's an interesting, you know, it, it is it's something they could have done in the 30s. It's a very old technique, but, you know, like you like you said, it just signals that, oh, now every time they've traveled, it's been this. And now something different and scary is happening. Yep. And it doesn't need to be an elaborate uh, effect. Catherine Helmand. Oh. Um, I love, 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 love Catherine Helmand dearly. I uh, not only love soap, not only love her on Brazil, love her here. But got a chance to work with her a little bit, and she is every bit as wonderful as she is on screen. And I, I think, again, this is another one of those actors who Gilliam casts where unique brain. No one else would have played Soap the way she played it. No one else could have played Soap the way she played it. And I think Gilliam is attracted to actors who bring you something that that is... You couldn't write what she does in Brazil. You could not write the yeah. the nuance. Great she actor to in that you, role. You only know Catherine Hellman as uh, from Who's the Boss, on which she is funny, 
but she's a great actor. Uh, interesting trivia tidbit is that this role was originally cast by Ruth Gordon and had to bow out before production. Apparently she suffered an injury of some sort. Oh, wow. Uh, and she would have been great. But uh, my favorite thing about this is the idea that the ogre is, you know, all right. Fragile. He's, like, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's playing like he's a monster, but he's also very old and, and beaten down. But she's not an ogre. She's a normal woman. Yep. <laughs> and she's ridiculously sweet. And I think, I don't know if this was an intentional thing or not, but Gilliam and Palin and Helmond make a really interesting point about women in this scene. Like a, you know, a very warm point, which is like the woman is the diplomat of the relationship. The woman is the, uh, the class for lack of a better word, you know, and she is the, the face of kindness, the face of friendliness. And, uh, her husband doesn't matter that he is a horrible giant ogre, uh, that, that the natural disposition to a woman is to be welcoming and gracious. And I, I just think that even after she, even as she feeds a foot into a meat grinder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I got the scale a, of this doesn't make any sense when they pull them out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. We, it's all over the place. And then what keep you want to talk scale? Just keep waiting. I know this is one of the great and this it is so rare that a poster as weird as the Time Bandits poster actually pretty much is a moment from the movie. I and don't understand this sequence. Why is he wearing a boat on his head? <laughs> uh, it's just his gig. That's what he does. He's just got a boat on his head, and he's a giant that walks around under the water, I guess. The fact uh, that it's not explained just makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, zero sense whatsoever. And yet this is to me, this is the kind of image that you get out of like a Miyazaki movie where it doesn't make any literal sense. But as soon as you see it, it just neatly fits into the canon of, of fantasy images for you. Like, right, it is one right. of those great all time film images, and, even and if I don't understand what the of, hell is happening. Yeah, it also kind of tells the audience, okay, we're not in the war, you know, we're not in Napoleon, Robin Hood, Agamemnon anymore. Like now we're dealing with ogres and giants. Get it? Okay. Now, you you know, like it's kind of telling the audience now we're in a fantasy world. If you didn't fully grasp it, here's some really weird stuff <laughs> and very cool ideas. But, but I just never understood. Like, why is he wearing a boat on his head? I don't get it. <laughs> I like the ogre throws his back out, putting them in the cooking pot. I'm afraid that if I were an ogre, I'd be this ogre by this point. You are that ogre. What do you mean? I neck? am. I am. Oh, my neck and my back. Oh, and my this, of gosh. course, is uh, Peter Vaughn as the ogre, who I did not know as a kid. I didn't know who Peter Vaughn was, and I didn't know who Ralph Richardson, who plays Supreme Being. I didn't know mm. who he was. Uh, but this this was probably one of my earliest introdu- introductions to, uh, to those two gentlemen who are great British actors. And Yeah. Uh, Almost unrecognizable yeah. in this movie, but fantastic. Oh, he is. Th- this is one of the most outrageous makeups in the film, definitely. Oh, those teeth, those those fang, the fangs right in the front there. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's something about Catherine Hellman's voice. I, I don't know what it is, but it's kind of like um, aristocratic, but warm. <laughs> you know, she's just. She's a. Uh, 
she seems like a, a wealthy woman who was raised right. <laughs> like a wealthy, nice person. That That's what Catherine Hellman's voice reminds me of. And yet much of what she says is completely, completely malicious and insane. Yep. Oh, those eyes. Yeah, she's extraordinary. She really is. And I again, you talk about a near miss. I think Ruth Gordon would have been fine here. But I think Hellman does something unique with it. No, yeah, Hellman. I mean, I think she has some kind of a, like an ironic or distant kind of warmth that Ruth Gordon didn't have. She would have been more caustic and and funnier, I think. But uh, no, Catherine Hellman's great, great, great. And yeah, uh, she's also phenomenal in Brazil in one of the one of the most iconic moments of the movie. But they fixed his back, at least. He can't be upset. Yeah, th- this to me feels like a live-action cartoon almost, this part, this segment. I wonder, I wonder how many Game of Thrones fans would even recognize him if they saw him here. Nah. Your dog's talking. Oh, I know. She's happy that I'm doing a commentary today. Is she a fan of she, uh, Time Bandits? Awesome. Uh, she loves it, of course. You know, You know, as dogs do. All right, and here we go. And you're right. This is one of those crazy, insane images. I love how they defeat him. I love how they have to figure out what to do. And there is, for, for them in general, the, the idea of being small and unobserved and somewhat under everybody's radar, um, I think this is the ultimate example of that. It just being a lot like you, whatever you thought you were doing, you're not in control. You're not driving it anymore. There's so much of this that works both metaphorically and just literally as a kid while you're watching. Um, and I wonder, knowing that they wrote as instinctively and as kind of off the cuff as they did, I wonder how much of that thematic work is accidental. I think with Gilliam, his work, seems to come from a place of him trying not to examine too closely what he's writing. Like he just tries to write impulse and yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Without, there's not a, all, internal logic is not necessarily all that important. <laughs> yeah. It feels like it's just, does it make sense to me as I'm writing it? And then, you know, do the images make sense? And I, it's one of the reasons that I, I find his work so, so worth going back in and taking apart is yeah. I don't think he, um, goes into everything with it all plotted out A, B, C in terms of what he thinks it'll do. I think he likes discovery. You happen to read Roger Ebert's review of uh, of Time Bandit? I have not. Give it Did three he like stars. it? Please tell me he liked it. He gives it three out of four stars, but a lot of the review is fairly negative. Really? Yep. I want to hear it. First, here, first paragraph. First reaction to while viewing Time Bandits, it's amazingly well produced. The historic locations are jammed with character and detail. This is the only live action movie I've seen that literally looks like pages out of heavy metal magazine with kings and swordsmen and wide eyed little boys and fearsome beasts. But the movie's repetitive, monotonous in the midst of all this activity. Basically, it's just a kid and six dwarfs racing breathlessly through one set piece after another, shouting at one another. I walked out of the screening in an unsettled state of mind. When the lights go up, I'm usually fairly certain whether or not I've seen a good movie, but my reaction to Time Bandits was ambiguous. I had great admiration for what was physically placed on the screen. The movie is worth seeing just to watch, but I was disappointed by the breathless way the dramatic scenes were handled and by a breakneck pace that undermined the most important element of comedy, which is timing. Weird. Damn, that guy could write. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it reads so simple, but, you know, to articulate your thoughts and, and technical terms in about a film, 
and make it so smooth and simple. Uh, the, the guy was just great, just great. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I was uh, read it earlier today. I was a little bit surprised that uh, that it read slightly more negative than the three stars. I guess uh, I actually don't remember how it did overall in terms of critical uh, reaction that summer. Um, that was right before I started reading criticism and right before it became like really important to me to know what people thought. Um, and I think part of the reason I started doing that was because I would disagree with my parents over films or I disagree over people I talked to. And I wanted to find some sort of backup, like when I liked something. What um, if you had a choice between reading a review of a movie you agree with or don't agree with, which review would you rather read? A review that I do, uh, like for a movie that I love, uh, yeah. uh, I actually really like reading reviews that I don't agree with. Yeah. Because I like trying to understand how somebody saw something. Um, and it, to me, it really clarifies, it forces me to think about what I do like about it. Yeah. It makes you, I think, that reading counter opinions on anything, but if, or, uh, especially in film in a way, uh, yeah. makes you more. In, makes you more experienced, intelligent, prepared to discuss film, because there have been plenty of times where I have liked or disliked a movie, read a contrary opinion, and thought, "Huh, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good point." And then you you know you absorb that and move forward, and you you know you become a hopefully interesting, more interesting uh, writer, uh, yeah. a film a writer as you move on. Now this is um this is a movie that like uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the stories about. Uh, Taxi Driver, when they were uh, trying to negotiate the ending of that movie, um, the ratings board had given them an X and they had really fought over how they were going to try and handle that. And there was a point where Martin Scorsese evidently had a gun in the trunk of his car and threatened to take it back upstairs and kill a Paramount executive because he was so unhappy with the way things were going or Columbia executive. And uh, that kind of heat sounds insane, but... I think for filmmakers, sometimes it becomes very life or death. And this movie, Time Bandits, had one of those moments. They, they, you know, the ending that you and I have talked about loving, Dennis O'Brien, one of the two producers and one of the guys that founded Handmade Films, hated that ending intensely. And they tested it. And the only reason that it didn't get cut was when they did the test screening, people walked out before the ending. The people that stayed to the very ending and filled the cards out liked the ending. Gilliam was thrilled that the people who left didn't fill cards out because clearly they weren't going to like the ending. They weren't going to like any this, of what they yeah, saw. There's, if this movie was made today, I don't care who directed it. That ending would not be in the film. Well, and he, he it came down to him trying to lean on the idea that test screening audiences had reacted well to it. And when O'Brien kept pushing him, Gilliam threatened to destroy the negative and was like, look, I made this film. I do not care. I will destroy this movie. And it turned into this genuinely heated fight. And I, I don't think after this, Harrison and Gilliam had much of a relationship or Gilliam and O'Brien. This was pretty much the end of that because of that ending. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, you, you know, you'd say, hey, film is a collaborative process and, you know, it, it is your film. But without us, you would not have the means to make your film. So maybe compromise is in order. But on the other hand, there are changes that you should not ask an artist to make. And if somebody, if the artist says, you know what, that ending does work. I'm okay with that. That works. Then you do it. If the artist says that runs counter to my entire point, then you don't do it. Like you have to trust the person you hired. 
And, you know, I can't even fathom how many great sequences and great endings we've been robbed of because some executive said that's too dark or that's too raunchy or that's too shocking. And, you know, it it bums me out. So when we get a weird or shocking ending like we did here or, you know, or or seven or what have you, 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 the mist, uh, be grateful, savor that ambiguous, thought provoking, challenging ending. Now we're at the uh, we're at the sequence now where they're outside of evil's um, domain and they're still on the other side of the the clear glass and that that's one of those great. I oh, the sound effect get my is, head around it when I was a kid. The sound effect like, kills what? it. The sound effect is wonderful. It's, yeah. it, it's the simple sound effect and just you know uh, without it, it it doesn't it looks a little goofy. With the sound effect, you buy every you buy every ounce of it. Yeah, he just they just broke it. And now we get the terrific Matt as they look through what was just a clear background. It's so good. Gilliam just, really used Matt's well in this movie, yeah, man. He took full well, advantage. I mean, he's in Britain. Uh, I love just the, the 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 symbolism that you could either take or leave. That's what I like. You know, sometimes symbolism is jammed down your throat and. A lot of times it's just, hey, I have a good visual idea and it could it could mean something. It could tap. And the idea of the whole the, 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 the clear glass and when they break it, it's not behind. It's not clear. It's actually was was hiding what's behind it. Love that stuff. And you grasp it as a kid, even if you don't realize that you grasp that the subtext. It's, you know, the idea that that in order to uh, to in order to approach the supreme being. They have to run around this ridiculous, elaborate maze. That's mm-hmm. life. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's a thought process behind everything in a film, whether that thought process is, uh, oh, that's a nice lamp. I like that shade of green or uh, no, that maze represents childhood. And you're, you know, you're, you're everything in a film has a point for it's there for a reason. So if you find symbolism in the smallest of things, you're not crazy. And then, but and yet, this was written in from first draft to final draft and in production, two months. Wow! Because they just had a release date. They had a or not a release date, but they had a time to go. And they had, if we're going to make a movie, this is when we have to make it. And so they had two months to go from nothing to shooting with this script. Right. Amazing! Again, amazing that a piece of work that has endured as well as this was written that fast and that sort of instinctively uh this movie we're coming up to it but i want to get into it uh it has one of my favorite ideas ever in fantasy movies and that is uh the 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 collection of an eclectic mixture of heroes or villains but in this case it's heroes uh he's got spacemen he's got roman soldiers he's got cowboys Mm -hmm. and in in no realm should those people all be in the same location but in this movie it makes perfect sense because oh, they were all on his bedroom floor. They're his toys. Yep, That's yep. I look at my kids and they play with uh, Alan, especially I'll look at him play with action figures and he'll get them all out there. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that mashups play so well to kids. Like every kid wants alien versus predator because of course it's alien versus predator. And I'll put them in there. And then what can we hit the fantastic four in there too? And can we put the kids love mashups? And I think they get harder and harder to justify as you get older and, and you're dealing with your own work and what you want to do thematically. But there is a real appeal to that. And Gilliam gets that right here with the way that that ending plays out, that it yeah, is it's everything gotta, like, that yeah. he loves. 
It's got a child's logic of, yeah, a, a spaceman and a, a Roman soldier and a cowboy, you know, they do exist in, in one common realm. My imagination, my, my playroom, my, my toy box, you know, like that, that's where those characters all exist in a kid's mind. And, you know, it's just, it's just visually, it's a great, you know, all these, all these iconic heroes or archetypal heroes, um, fighting against evil on behalf of a kid and a bunch of crooks. It's just a great moment. Um, and as a kid, I couldn't articulate what I liked about it. And as an adult, I barely can, but I try. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, uh, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there. Um, the, uh, scene that we're on right now is when they're in the maze and they're, and we've just seen that Matt that you love so much. Um, one of the things that I adore about this film is it was my introduction to Jim Broadbent and the older he's gotten and the more beloved he's become. I find it delightful because he is one of the strangest and most wonderful giant rubber headed actors that I've ever seen. It's one of the reasons I, I was so taken with him the first time I saw Gilliam use him. And then over the course of this in Brazil and the way Gilliam sort of repeatedly introduced him to us, I really fell for this guy. It has been terrific to watch him have the later career that he's had and to see him become this beloved resource, whether the Wachowskis or, you know, whether Gilliam has gone back and used him, whoever's used him, Broadbent has ended uh, up becoming just forgot beloved. the director who's used Jim Broadbent to the best effect ever. And who would that be? Baz Luhrmann. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he's so terrific in that. Yeah. Um, no, but it is. I, and it's a great starting point here. He does something. He does something as well as anybody possibly could, which is the sort of oozy, unctuous talk show host announcer type. And he does it again in Brazil as the just oozy plastic surgeon working on Hellmond. But when Jim Broadbent oozes over you it is just unparalleled he's so good at doing it in this yeah and it's a great temptation the idea that temptation at the hands of the devil is presented as a crappy english quiz show seems very appropriate yeah and again these are odd jokes that like if i'm terry gilliam and i'm about to write or shoot this scene i'm thinking god this is odd are kids going to get this? Are adults going to like this? Does this make sense? It's really like it's already weird. And I just keep weird making it weirder. And, you know, when you're a filmmaker who enjoys being strange, how do you know when to like taper, like close, shut that faucet down and let people like catch up, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there are filmmakers who like weird and go too far and you completely lose the audience because it's just that too weird. Um, but Gilliam, I would say in almost all cases is a master at finding like the humor and the humanity in, in giant, large, uh, concepts, you know? All right. So we're getting, we we're, are both, getting, we're, we're getting enraptured in this, in one of our favorite sequences. Well, we're, yeah, that's the thing is we're getting into the, uh, the home stretch of the film here. And so we're getting to the part now where it really does start to, Pay, bring back and pay off everything that's happened earlier in the film. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where I think if a Hollywood movie did this, they would make sure that you understood all of the callbacks that were happening. Every single one would have to be under a neon spotlight. 
Yes. Whereas this, I, I feel like one of the real joys of this is that it took me a while. Like you said, it was four or five viewings in before you started to pick details up. Same way for me. The older I've gotten and the more I've looked at this film and the more you realize how layered it is and how much of it is set up at the beginning and then paid off at the end. Um, it's a real sense of admiration. But he, uh, I, it's weird that he does not underline his accomplishment and and push your nose into it to reemphasize it. And I, I think that speaks to who Gilliam is as a filmmaker is he doesn't necessarily want to impress you with how clever he is. He is clever, but yeah, he's no, no. focused on something else entirely. Like he's not necessarily worried about. I think that most filmmakers think that, all right, in order for people to enjoy my film, they have to take three or four steps and they'll probably enjoy it. Uh, Gilliam is, says for people to enjoy my films, they have to take six or seven steps. And I'm cool with that. End of story. That's it. That's literally it. Like, I'm not not saying I'm smarter or more artistic or more talented. I'm just saying that my films will require a little extra work, just like uh, some crossword puzzles require a little extra work. <laughs> then, and there's nothing wrong with that. And you know, uh, you have to be willing to um, have a leap of faith with Gilliam. You have to will be willing to just trust that there's a method to his madness. And boy, is there in his best movies, especially. Um, and, and, you know, I think that like when you trust a filmmaker who's being strange and he delivers something that that's really satisfying, that's kind of what creates like an, a, a fandom, a passion an affection. And, you know, that's how I feel about Del Toro too. in, 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 and, uh, Bong Joon-ho, which is these films might not be for literally everyone, but if this is the vibe that you like, I think you're going to love this. And, and that's the kind of you know filmmakers that I really respond to. Man, one of the great escapes here. I still don't totally know how they did a couple of these shots where they're swinging the guys and you're looking at it from a distance. I mean, it just, just looks just, real. I, well, Drew, let me explain to you how miniatures work. You see. <laughs> yeah, but there's real people in the shot. That's what's it's so great. He is. Yeah. He hides these things so well. And then. Man, you just buy the reality of it. By the time they're sliding down and getting out of the cage and stuff, it, it looks like they uh, built this giant maze as a set. No, it, it, this sequence feels like like um, some kind of like classic mind bender. Of you know, there are two cages hanging equidistant, and how, <laughs> you know, and it's like, how would you get out? You know, first you have to kid, carry the cat across. Right, then you swing. Um, I love that whole sequence. Love the shots of the rope breaking. It's all great. Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. It was something again, something very, something truly intelligent and insightful that would inspire thousands of people to subscribe to our podcast. And I can't, hey, that guy's short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, the Kenny Baker that. thing, it's interesting that, I, I find that while Randall and some of the other guys have stronger personalities, Kenny Baker is largely defined by what happens to him near the end of this film. That's yeah. one of the main reasons that his character really registered. And that was an accident of scheduling as well. Um, that was just a case of Connery was supposed to be the guy that led that charge at the end. And they couldn't get his schedule to work out for him to come back. So they had to rewrite it. And that gave Fidget a chance to suddenly shine. And honestly, it's one of the best moments in the movie now. Um, Gilliam, considering how often adversity strikes him, 
I think the real lesson in his filmography, especially for younger filmmakers, has got to be watch his movies, listen to the commentary tracks he's done for Criterion if you can get hold of them, listen or read books about the making of his films, whether it's Munchausen or the great Jack Matthews book, The Battle for Brazil, but read about um, how often things completely and utterly go wrong for Terry and then read about how he responds to that because he's one of the few filmmakers who I really feel like much of what I love about his filmography comes from horrifying accidents. Yeah, where he- I, you know what? I, I I don't I hate to say this, but if I was Terry Gilliam, I would have I would have quit directing around 1990. Oh God, yeah. Uh, and I'm ridiculously grateful that he didn't. But uh, the guy, all right, he makes difficult movies, and he can be difficult to work with. Those are not uncommon traits. Beyond that, like Drew said, he seems truly snake bit. If he has to shoot outside, it's going to rain. You know, if he just signed an actor, that actor is going to be late. I mean, like no matter what, it just seems like no matter what happens, there's a good chance it's going to blow up in his face somehow. And that also, I think, generates a little bit of loyalty among people because it's like not only does the guy make in the most for the most part, fantastic, fascinating movies, but he does them in very difficult, you know, he gets them done through difficult productions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. What films, Drew, of the 1980s, what adventure and family-oriented films would you uh, compare favorably to Time Bandits? Um, it's tough. I, uh, I, I think that... Um, for kid oriented fantasy films, I I really like um one of the ones this reminds me of is Explorers, Joe Dante's film. Yeah. Uh where I think that again the kids are given such agency and there is a sense that they are controlling that movie, that it is not a movie about I I like movies where it's kind of like kids live in a parallel world where adults almost vanish where kids have this entire adventure and this entire life. And that was, um, that was unique to the eighties. And I don't know that we'll get back to that in storytelling. It's one of the reasons stranger things has to be set in the eighties is kids Uh, had agency then. And there were, there was a sense that you could have an adventure. I don't even know what an adventure movie starring my kids would look like because my kids are hovered over so constantly as are all of their friends that no kid could vanish for 10 minutes, much less, two weeks while they run around and they have adventures and things. I would, uh, yeah, that's, mm, I would, I would compare this, I think is a, is a better film, but the never ending story I think would fit in that category. I can see that. I'm, I'm not a huge fan and we'll get to that and we'll talk about why, but the comparison that's fair there is that because it was not made in the studio system and because it was made in Germany and because it was a totally different sort of technical pool, it looks kind of like this does in the sense that it is handcrafted and yeah. older <laughs> in some sense rather than not this cutting typical, edge thing. Yeah, not a typical American production. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that comparison makes a lot of sense and I can see how they feel similar. Uh, I just the idea of a, of a of a kid being in a fantasy world and like just being responsible for his own choices, that kind of thing. Uh, it seems um, that it has yeah a similar uh, stripe to uh to yeah. story. Well, fantasy this is one of the reasons that it felt so weird when we finally got to um 
Lord of the Rings was because I feel like fantasy fantasy was so hard to get right and frequently is where things fell apart, whether it was legend or whether it was lady Hawk, there's always some, some weird, yeah, it's a tumbling tough balance, block of those man. films. There's you a know? really tough balance. It's like what Gilliam is willing to do. No, nobody else can do, but like in order to make fantasy, it, you got to really balance like earnest behavior and a little bit of danger and like a fairy tale innocence. And that's really easy to screw up on film. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love legend if for, in many ways for a lot of reasons, but it's also, um, it's also a messy movie and I, I'm looking forward to getting to that one. I like, I like legend a lot. Maybe we'll do a commentary for that one. Okay. We just got to the scene where, um, he's been given the pig head and for the first time ever, thanks to the clarity in which I'm looking at it, I just realized those, that pig's head, the pig's eyes actually move in that head. Mm. I think it was always, I always thought it was an immobile mask just because I thought it would be easier. But there's some articulation on the thing. It was actually like looking in different directions and things. Imagine, Oof. imagine. Okay, now here come the Legos. Now they're running out onto the Lego set where yeah. you have giant Lego blocks. And imagine somebody walked evil. into the room right now and had never seen this movie, and they just are staring at the television screen, and you're like, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Now it's going to get really strange because now you got the weird skull creatures, and yep. you've got evil, and you've got. All of Evil's Henchmen. This is honestly one of my favorite visual sequences in any Gilliam film still. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a wonderful like collection of characters and and like uh, archetypes and and it's like kind the of like you said. Henchmen. Yeah, it's kind of like what you I said. I love how he abuses his henchmen in this and what he turns them into and the things he does to them. I I, I almost think that that was a I I it could be completely reach here. But it almost seems like that's a, a, a riff on Empire Strikes Back. No? Wait, which one? How he keeps killing his underlings and, and transforming them. Oh, maybe. It wouldn't surprise me if that was in their head because they were writing this uh, right about as the time. Right it about just seemed like a Empire mild parody. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like a mild parody of Vader force choking people and stuff like that. But I, I, again, that could just be a. So freak. so cheerful. They're so cheerful about being murdered by him here. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you, bastard. And now all gone. Blows up all of his own henchmen because he doesn't need them. And then the elaborate nature of what happens when his head opens and when it all comes out. I would love to have seen the build for this. Yeah. Why? So many of my I mean, favorite and I don't films. Mean, I mean this in a, in, as a compliment too, but but why? Yeah, you could just see somebody on set going, "Does this? Do we? Does this exact moment? Is it necessary? Really? Like?" <laughs> but you know, it's that, that's the beauty is like directing is not let's do the minimal amount of work possible to tell the story. Directing is this is the story I want to tell. Uh oh, and if he's got the map. A, oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the whole bit with all the lassos, I always love that visual. I thought oh that was God. Here they come. Here come tanks. And this is considering, again, that this was put together. He's talked about how the budget on this final sequence, it really became a matter of what can we afford? How much can we put in? It doesn't feel limited at all. No. You've got what feels, to, especially when you're a kid and you see this. I remember thousands of soldiers riding in. I remember dozens of tanks. I remember it feeling even bigger than it does. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's the the beauty of film. You know, if you see a shot of a tank and then a shot of another tank, that doesn't necessarily mean two tanks. Yeah. <laughs> it could mean 50 tanks. Uh, and it's a it's a wonderfully edited movie. I think it it moves like a shot. I mean, like the movie's almost two hours and it's almost over. And I'm sorry, but it doesn't feel like we've been sitting here for 110 minutes. And the best part about a movie that moves well is throughout the good parts, you're like, all right, let's go. And then for the few missteps, it's still really quick. <laughs> now here's the Cowboys. Here's he's got the spaceship has landed. I love David Warner's just letting them show up. It's like, all right, come on, finish it up. Get everybody in here. That's that's so, great evil. Right. Like the idea that I'm going to let this child's imagination think it has the upper hand, but yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. You know? Let's see how much we bring in here. But uh, who does evil? Who does he represent to you? Because he's not the devil. Devil. What no, is? He? And I think originally that was the idea. Was was <laughs> just like he gets to meet Robin Hood and everybody. He was going to meet the devil. Um, but I think this evil is far more indicative of the things that Kevin finds evil. Um, because I do, I still read this as just pure fantasy on the part of the child. And oh yeah, it is one hundred percent his here? perspective. I mean, yeah. there's not a scene in the movie without him. So what is what is the thing that he is afraid of? And I think he is afraid of uh, something that would make all of this imagination and make all of the wonder and make all of the as much as it's traumatic for Kevin at times. This adventure is still everything Kevin's ever dreamed of. What and the notion that this thing just wants to shut all that down and stop the fun and plug the hole and use the holes for something more adult and mundane. That's what's disgusting to Kevin is I think the adult world just just in general from watching his parents just bums him out. Yeah, to me, uh, that, that that's a great interpretation. To me, it's as simple as he is their parent. He is his parents. That the, the evil is his parents. He is callous, cold, unimpressed by everything. He has uh, no wonder, no excitement. He is just completely bored and cynical and blank. And he is their parents, and he wants to stamp out all the fantasy and the imagination and the wonder that he is enjoying. And, uh, you know, it's not just an adventure movie told from a kid's perspective. It is an it is an like an angry statement about the importance of letting a child use their imagination or not even letting but like compelling a child to use their imagination. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a, a celebration of maybe not the innocence of childhood, but like the, the glorious naivete of being a child. Yeah. It just has its own way. It works, man. And you can either respect that or you can try and squash it. And there is a lot of it. The worst thing that can happen to Kevin in this movie is that somebody could take his books away, that he could grow up, that he become the thing that is, sitting on a couch, just like his parents. I don't know. I think, I think Gilliam has a very healthy fear of normalcy. And in all of his films, (laughs) over the course of his filmography, there's this sense that when you buy into the system, you give up so much of who and what you are. And I, I I mean, I'm, I'm still haunted by the fact that uh, Brazil has such an unhappy, happy ending that it is a movie that, I think one of the reasons it hurt me so much the first time I saw it was because it's a movie that says the bullies win. And I think often often do. Yes. And I think Gilliam really that's part of his worldview. And it's not what Hollywood sells us. It's not what they want to sell us. It's not what makes tickets fly out of the box office. 
but it's under all of Gilliam's stuff. It's one of the reasons his fantasies aren't terribly comfortable. As much as I love this film, it's one of the reasons that it sat weirder than much of what I saw in this era because it did feel like it was well, a it more is, I mean, honest it is weirder. Take. That's the beauty. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's much weirder than most kids' adventure movies, especially in the early 80s. And, you know, I think the fact that it made money still surprises me. But uh, the fact that people still love it to this day is a testament to that it is unique and challenging and um, unpredictable. That, you know, like that, those three things might not always equal box office success, but a, a lot of times those three things equal people are going to love your movie 30 years later. Talk about it on a podcast while they're not wearing any pants. Hey, how did you know? Is my oh, camera on again? I told you, man. We don't. We... Uh, and here goes Fidget. Oh, this bummed me out. Yep. And, and it, it's necessary in a way. Because the movie has had like the double edge of of fanciful whimsy and also kind of, you know, dark humor and, and darkness and threat. And having one of them go is, you know, fitting. Boy, and he doesn't he really doesn't spare your feelings there. He squashes fidget on camera right in your face. Thanks, Terry. That's not a bummer. <laughs> Does that does that make it almost lighter though? Um, it is fascinating the, that he would. Uh, and look, I'm sorry that he didn't get Connery back for this part. But again, you talk about how he adapts to things and how accidents help him. I love the fact that Connery at the end is a direct result of the fact that they didn't get Connery back for this. Yeah. That that conversation was like, well, I'm really sorry you didn't get to come back. Well, I have an idea. Yeah, and and I it really it, that it wasn't in the script is great, and it it does bring a really an interesting Wizard of Oz type touch to it, which is you know the the very fun idea that the people in real life were in your dream somehow. But mm -hmm. this is interesting because he had never met Connery before that, so he couldn't have been you know dreaming about him yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't met the fireman. Um, but um, yeah, it's. God, Purvis is good here. When Purvis gets mad, oh, he's uh, starts marching at him. Oh, he's oh man, there's, I mean, there's no other hero shot this decade that's that's better than favorite. that in terms of he's yeah. my favorite uh, time bandit, Purvis. He's great, and and he's got such a great face. You know, like Doesn't most actors, most actors, character actors have like you know a a very demonstrative and, and iconic and, and, and memorable face. And that Jack Purvis has, I don't care if oh, he's, he's tall or yeah. six feet tall. The man had a great screen presence and, and, uh, attitude just this, you know, uh, he, he would have been a, a successful character actor at any height. And then I love Richardson's appearance. He is such the opposite uh, of what uh, we've been fearing the entire movie. Apparently, it was originally written that as he's chasing them throughout the movie, that he was supposed to look like God in the robes and everything. Don't know if this is true, but it's something I read that that he was originally supposed to look like God, but they ended up changing it to the head thing. And I, I don't know, maybe that was a, you know, that little tool on the nose, like people are going to be offended if you make God the villain kind of thing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, having just having not long ago done the uh, done the episode where we talk about Dragon Slayer. Um, I saw both of these that same summer and here's how good Ralph Richardson is. Didn't realize it was him. 
I oh, didn't. Yeah. I didn't at that age connect that Ralph Richardson was the same guy because he nope, is I didn't unrecognizable either. in Dragon Slayer and this. Yep. Um, and it's really only later that the voice finally, the penny finally dropped. I got a stomachache, Drew. Is it because you know Time Bandits is almost over? It's because I haven't eaten since about in about twelve hours. No, I, I have a stomach ache because Dying Bands is almost over, but same thing. No, no, I'm not. wasn't a hint. Yeah, that was a hint that we should end the commentary early. Just trying to be just trying to be a little. Um, oh, my God. And then I love after after evil has kicked everybody's ass. I just love the mountains of dead bodies yeah, that are scattered around that set. The, the knights that have all been impaled into giant shapes behind them. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, and, and one of the things that I have discovered watching 80s movies constantly all day every day is uh a lot of the stuff was very like similar and this is different and you could just see filmmakers saying yeah there's like what there's three adventure movies out right now and they're all pretty much a to b to c quests what would happen god forbid if i made something that was just like 35% really weird. And it wasn't a conventional adventure movie. And people get terrified. And they go, we're not investing $5 million in that. Are you crazy? Uh, but yet, if you were able to look into the future and, and realize that you know 30 years later, people are going to be still in love with the movie, you'd be like, all right, do whatever it takes. You know, We are making art. I think when you're making movies, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that you're making art and you have to deadlines and you have to get the product to the producer, to the, you know, store. And, uh, I don't get that from Gilliam. I, 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 one, I always get that this man is an artist first and I love one it. Of the, one of the weird side effects of, um, the pop culture I grew up with is, you know, we talked not long ago about Pink Floyd, the wall, and I must've listened to that album and watched that movie 4,000 times. And Python was important to me. And th there's a, a whole wealth of, British pop culture that I absorbed. It's weird the way you then start to. I, I obviously have no sense of having grown up during World War II or grown up in the post World War II generation of fatherless kids. But thanks to the art that I've digested, I almost feel like I do. Like I have these weird echoes of other people's experiences and other people's culture. And British culture was such an obsession for me for so long. Drew, I'm not joining your religion. Please stop. It's stuff like, you know, phone booths or like bin, like the disposal bin, they're dropping everything in. Yeah. That's not what American stuff looks like, but it's as familiar and comforting to me in some way because of that British pop culture I soaked up. It's inestimable what films do for a young person's knowledge of other cultures. It's inestimable. I mean, just if you, I mean, it could be the most basic thing in the world, like Shaun of the Dead, where you pick up a few pieces of slang. But uh, just learning that, oh, other cultures, other countries drive on the other side of the street. Oh, other countries don't have this holiday. Oh, you know, just piecing these little things together so that you learn about other cultures. You know, like, that's important. And film can do that a lot, even a populist, funny, weird movie like Time Bandits, you know, I, and I, I, I think that our generation, uh, thanks to TV and film, 
have grown up a lot more accepting and tolerant than the previous generation because we've been shown things and we go, yeah, that is right or that is wrong. And, and uh, you know, uh, I think art can do a lot of good things for, uh, for culture in general, people in general. All right. Now we're all the way back. We're finally, oh. there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Home's a piece of shit. Here we go. And, and it, this almost to me feels like his Gilliam is, is saying ahead of time, oh, you think this is a Wizard of Oz framework? Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. His aunt, her aunt and uncle didn't blow up when she got home. So this is not your dad's Wizard of Oz. Dude, I may recut the Wizard of Oz to have that be the ending. I mean, but... The Auntie point- M, you were there? <laughs> well, Annie M, was, they were there for her at the beginning. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't be that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't see... How could this other... All right. You're, well, then that should have been the ending of Return to Oz after they give her electroshock. Yeah, yeah. All right, Drew, here we go. You're Terry Gilliam. I am the uh, executive producer, and I'm saying, Drew, Terry, I will give you $5 million to do any other ending besides this. What, Drew, I'm asking you, what ending would you like? Oh, my God. Like, the parents learn the error of their ways. The parents uh, ignore him more. They're standing outside. They literally don't even notice Kevin's been brought out of the house. They're more concerned about their stuff that's burning. And then there's the other, this is not the Wizard of Oz, because Kevin's got the photos in his yeah. little pouch from yeah. everything he did. Another one of those touches where how much of this is, you know, that's where Gilliam kind of plays with what you believe you're going to get the easy reset at the end. God, I want that map. I want that map. Yeah, I want but not just you, a reproduction. Could, I want that map. Could could you come up with a, a decent ending that's not this? No. That, that fits the theme of the movie? I, I don't think I could. No. And I'm a brilliant writer. <laughs> <laughs> and they both touch it. It's funny because when I showed this, I told you, I showed this to Toshi, and I'll wrap with this. Um, way, way back. And his takeaway from this, when we talked about it after that first screening, was he wanted me to understand that sometimes – Kids know better. <laughs> and he was very upset. He's like, but dad, if I told you something and I told you that it was really important, would you listen to me? I was like, yeah. And he's like, but they didn't listen. Parents don't listen and you have to listen. So you have to listen to me. And he was very adamant that I needed to learn something from this movie that sometimes kids know what's up. Yeah. And, and you know, if it's true that you're a, your son is very wise and B uh, you know, the film is told completely from the boy's perspective and these were rotten parents. And no, the movie is not advocating that it's a good idea if if rotten parents explode. It's heightened reality. The, the, yeah. the artistic point is he doesn't care about his parents because they don't care about him. And, you know, that goes around, comes around. And it's like a it's a bitter pill at the end of a, a kid's movie. But God, it's a good point. And boy, I'll tell you, the best move you can make is when hiring an executive producer, in my opinion, is to hire an executive producer who also happens to be a Beatles so that he can write your closing credits song. Yeah. Oh, my Uh, goodness. I love this song. I would like to thank everybody who has joined us for this long quest. Uh, Everybody who has uh, subscribed to the Patreon. And if you're listening to this, that means you. Thank you. We are very uh, uh, grateful and appreciative. And we hope you spread the word. And we'll be back in two weeks with another bonus episode. Uh, I also want to thank you guys. And uh, this was one that was, again, I think kind of personal, important to, to me to, to do. And I love that Scott let us do this one. Um, 
and that he has the same affection for it that I do. Uh, a lot of the times when we're picking commentary tracks, we're going to pick movies we love. Um, I don't really want to turn this into a, you know, let's dissect something or let's pull something apart. Um, these commentaries are I, really I would like a to do a commentary for something bad and not just be mean, but like be analytical. I think there's I think there's movies that I want to do where we will get into like genuinely mystifying, like big choices and things. But uh, what I what I love about doing these is that chance to sit and watch it with you guys, because we're never going to have a chance to sit down with every you know listener to 80s all over or put all of you in the same place. Um, and there is something I'm about doing that. watching doing a that. movie together as a commentary that I find kind of uniting. So I really enjoy doing these. Uh, we're going to continue to pick them, pick ones that are movies that we've lived with for as long as we have that we love as much. Like Valero. Uh, ooh, I can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs>